This is a Faith FM podcast. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Hello there, and thanks again for joining me. I'm Robbie Bergen, and you are listening to The Faith Experiment. This is Episode 7 of The Faith Experiment, and I'm calling this episode Testing the Gods. This show is about exploring faith and making it practical. And I'm starting The Faith Experiment by looking at my own personal journey as I started to experiment with faith. You see, this show is not talking about just theories, it's about real life. And so far, I've been talking you through how I went from a non-believer to a faith experimenter. Well, to get started here, I'd love to hear where you're listening to The Faith Experiment from today. Let me know by texting me on 0488-453-11, or you can email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au or message me on the Faith FM Facebook page. Now, in this episode, I have another great book to give away. It's called The History of Tomorrow, and this book reveals Earth's last 2,600 years through the eyes of kings, prophets, popes, and presidents. It unveils a pattern in the timeline of history and exposes some amazing events that will soon take place on our planet. So stick around to get the code word during the show. You'll need to text the code word to 0488-45311. So save that number in your phone, 0488-45311, and wait for the code word. Well, so far on The Faith Experiment, I've shared with you how leading up to the events of September 11, 2001, I found myself encountering what I'm calling metaphysical events. There was that encounter of that dark, shadowy figure in that nightclub that made me feel like I was being suppressed or oppressed by some dark, sinister force or forces. And then there was the experience in the field where I was shown how I was not as good as I saw myself. And then there was 911 and how on that day I was introduced to the idea that there are predictions out there that might help explain our time. Now, I shared with you how these series of events ultimately led me to dig through ancient manuscripts and sacred texts and artifacts, trying to understand this mystical thing called belief and faith. Now, through this quest, I found that all these worldviews believe in this concept of morality, the idea that there is something different between right and wrong. And looking for an explanation of how this is possible, that across different people groups with limited, if any, real contact from one another, how they can arrive at generally the same definition of what is right and what is wrong. And I share with you how I came across that 1987 DNA study, which suggested that all people came from a single point, not just in time, but also geographically. And these findings seem to be supported by these worldviews, which all indicate that all of humanity somehow, somewhere came from at a point in time from a creator God. Now, as I searched to find out who this creator God is and what he is like, I ended up with an amazing list of characteristics and attributes, which when I summarized them inside that circle, which I used to represent God, I was shocked to realize that the very thing which God is meant to be was the definition of the very things that I was looking for in life. I was looking for God and I didn't even know it. I then thought, is there really a God then? Or are these characteristics and attributes from these worldviews just ideals that humans have prescribed to some kind of heavenly distant body? 
I mean, how do we know that these so-called holy texts are in fact from God or some sort of spiritual being, some deity? How can you prove that God exists? Now, as I shared with you on the last episode, after exploring the worldviews that claim that their holy book comes from God, I found that all of them but one offer no real way to test or to prove that the texts come from God, other than legend and tradition, which, for me, the skeptic, just didn't cut it. But then there was in these ancient Hebrew manuscripts those claims that God can reveal the future before it happens. And this is proof to the claim that God is the author of these texts. And here was something that was testable. Now, if you missed any of the previous episodes and you want to catch up on some of the details of the story so far, go ahead and grab the Faith FM app from your app store or go to faithfm.com.au and look under the podcast section for the Faith Experiment. As everyone knows from a human perspective, time only moves in one direction. And it is incredibly hard to predict the future. Not just great events of civilizations and and wars and presidents and politics and finances, but even on the simplest things like what will the weather be like tomorrow. Human beings, ever since time has begun, have been trying to figure out a way to tell the future, to know what will happen before it happens. From as old as history itself, we have records of soothsayers and magicians and seers and prophets and mediums and psychics and fortune tellers and clairvoyants. There's something in the human mind that craves to know the future. If you search for the term prediction on Google, you'll get something in the order of 900 million hits. Type in prophecy and you'll get 180 million hits. Try searching for what will happen in the future and you'll get something in the order of 3 trillion hits. There's no question that we humans, we want to know the future. Now, these once dark arts, as they were considered, these this idea of trying to communicate with spirits and understanding the future was once considered taboo. But now society has accepted this into the mainstream. Well, she's appeared on shows like Oprah. She's done psychic readings for the Kardashians, plus helped solved crimes of crimes and missing person cases. Psychic medium Lisa Williams is in demand around the world and she's back in Australia. And we are so lucky to have her on our panel. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Well, get ready because our next guest is one of America's top psychic mediums, and his readings will definitely raise the hairs on the back of your neck. But with Tyler Henley, you never know where you're going to go. He wows people with his psychic abilities. Because if you're having strange dreams while in quarantine, you are not alone. Yeah, so what do they mean? And we are brought in our expert, our friend, trained psychic medium, Cindy Summer, who joins us now live by FaceTime with some explanations. Good morning, Cindy. There have been many famous people who have claimed to be able to tell the future. If we go back to the Greeks, there's Cassandra, who is said to have predicted the event of the Trojan horse. Then there were the priestess at Delphi, Pythia, who have made more than 500 predictions. And these statements, the leaders at the time would believe to the very letter. For example, in the 9th century BC, Pythia stated that the love of money and nothing else will ruin Sparta. 
As a result, Lycurgus banned silver and money and made Spartans lug around coins made of heavy iron instead. And in AD 67, she said to Nero, Number 73 marks the hour of your downfall. Now apparently, not liking to hear of his inevitable defeat, Nero had Pythia buried alive. Then there's the famous Frenchman Nostradamus, whose prophecies pop up on a fairly regular basis and freak people out when they're able to apply his predictions to current events, although very disputed as to what he actually meant by a lot of his statements. And in recent times, there have been some very famous people who've attached their names to the long list of those who claim to be able to tell the future. After the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan in 1981, Ronald Reagan's wife, Nancy Reagan, she sought the advice of a psychic named Joe Quigley, who she met on the Mel Griffith show several years earlier. According to Time magazine, no presidential appearance was made without first consulting Joan Quigley to see if the stars aligned or not. For instance, when Reagan and Gorbachev met in Washington, D.C., she cast the charts of both men and determined that 2 p.m. on December 8, 1987 was the most favorable moment for them to sign the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. At Nancy's order, the entire summit was built around that hour. And then there was American Jean Dixon, who was an astrologer and an alleged psychic who's most famous for her claim that she predicted the assassination of President Kennedy, which is greatly disputed. Many of Dixon's predictions proved erroneous. For example, she claimed that a dispute over the islands in Quimoy would trigger the start of World War III in 1958. And she said that the American labor leader, Walter Rutherall, would run for the presidency of the United States in 1964. She also predicted that the second child of Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and his younger wife Margaret would be a girl. It was a boy. And she also predicted that the Soviets would be the first person to put a man on the moon. And then there was the American Edgar Case. Case was a renowned seer who made his predictions by laying down and entering into a trance-like state, which gave him the nickname of the Sleeping Prophet. While he was in these trances, people would be invited to ask him all sorts of questions about their future, specifically about their health. And he's said to have made predictions about the Great Depression, the coming of Hitler, and things like California crumbling off into the ocean and the discovery of the city Atlantis. Now, in more recent times, with the advent of social media and video-on-demand services, it seems that just about every second person on these platforms has the prophetic gift, as they call it. Hi, my name is Olivia. If you don't know me, I am the Witch of Wonderlust here on YouTube and on Instagram. And today, we're going to level up your protection game. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Stargirl, the Practical Witch, and welcome back to my channel. Well, I'm a medium, and so I connect to people's loved ones, so... That's something you believe in? Again, uh... But let's continue this conversation around this court case with self-proclaimed prophet Mboro Mutsuaneng joining us in studio. So uh, you, of course, came out and spoke about... Friends have frank and open conversations with each other. I've done that with the Lord. I've had the Lord say, uh, Jesse, I've had God come tell me, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I've had the Lord say, what do you think about this? God has asked me for my opinion. I said, well, Lord, since you asked, maybe I'm doing... He said, no, we can talk frankly. What do you think? I said, well, I don't think you ought to do that. And yet, even with the rapid increase of 
people predicting the future. A few years ago, in the magazine These Times, there was an article that looked at the average accuracy of these psychics, and it was found that the average accuracy rate was just 16%. Now, that might be better than you and I can do, but that's not really that impressive, especially to me as a skeptic. Well, we have to take a short break now, but when we come back, we'll continue with my faith experiment as I seek to understand this thing called prophecy. And don't forget to stick around for today's code word for the book, The History of Tomorrow. We'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 04888-45311. That's 04888-45311. Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear. In my distress, He kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for His own. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus. Jesus alone 
This is The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Listen live or listen later. Get the Faith FM app from your app store today. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm your host, Robbie Bergen, and this is Episode 7 of The Faith Experiment, and I'm calling this episode Testing the Gods. Now, remember, I have this great book, the history of tomorrow to give away. So stick around to get the code word during the show. You'll need to text the code word to 0488-45311. So say the number on your phone, 0488-45311, and wait for the code word. Now, I've been sharing with you before the break that my quest progressed in trying to understand whether or not there was a way to validate the claims of these sacred texts of these worldviews that claim that they come from God. And I shared with you how I came across that repeated concept in the Hebrew manuscripts that accurate telling of the future was the evidence that these texts held up as the proof that God was, in fact, the author. But when you start to enter the world of prophets and prophecy and prediction, you're immediately overwhelmed with the fact that the so-called landscape is littered with so-called prophets, mystics and mediums. And so I started with the basics. Prophecy. What is it? The dictionary definition is the foretelling or a prediction of something that is to come. Now, as you look at prophecies or predictions, there have been numerous attempts to predict the future. Even in my lifetime, I've seen claims that the world would end in 1999 and that there'll be a total world reset with the year 2000 and Y2K. And in 2012, you remember, the world was meant to end because of how the Mayan calendar was being read. There have been many attempts to reveal the future, but as we both know, for the most part, they've all failed. And all of this points to the fact that it's not easy to tell the future. Now, as I mentioned before the break, studies have shown that only six out of 250 predictions come true. That's about 3%. And in that article in These Times magazine, the average accuracy of leading psychics was found to be just 16%. Or you can think of it this way, for every 100 predictions, only 16 actually happen. Now, I'm not trying to to knock anybody here, but I'm just pointing out the fact that it's not easy to predict or to tell the future. And so, it's pretty common knowledge that we humans just don't have it in our makeup, the ability to successfully and reliably tell the future, or even reveal future events. And this is why the claim that the Bible makes is so intriguing. Here is a religious text that claims that its author is God, and then claims that you can test whether or not it comes from God, and that test is prophecy. Does God know the future well enough to be able to reveal it to us before it happens successfully and reliably? And so this led me on a quest to understand the nature of prophecy. And what I found was that in order to have a valid or good prophetic source, you need a source that has two essential ingredients. The sources need to be historically accurate. They have to have a proven track record of dependable and reliable predictions. It needs to have a batting average of 100%, not just 16%. Now, the Hebrew manuscripts have voluntarily placed themselves on the table, so to speak, as a source of dependable and reliable predictions. And it's on this basis of this claim that the author of the text is either God or man. Now, remember, no other religious text does this. 
As I've shared in previous episodes, all the other texts that claim they're from God expect you to accept that claim by faith. Only the Bible lays itself out there and says, test me, prove me. So in this quest to establish whether or not the Bible is in fact a dependable and reliable source of prediction, I first looked at the historical accuracy of the Bible. After all, I'd heard lots of debates between atheists and Christians over the years on how the Bible contains so many contradictions. So, to see if this text are actually historically accurate, I turned to archaeology. And what I found was that there are three significant discoveries that help answer this question. The first significant archaeological discovery was found in the land of Egypt in 1798 by a French officer who was on a campaign in Egypt for Napoleon. This officer was in the Delta region of the Nile, and there he found a stone with inscriptions, which has come to be known now as the Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone is what is known as a stele, or a stone slab, generally taller than it is wide, and it was erected in the ancient world as a monument. The Rosetta Stone was inscribed with three versions of a decree that was issued in 196 BC. The top decree was written in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, and the middle decree is written in an ancient Egyptian demonic script, and the bottom decree is written in ancient Greek. Now, scholars theorize that this stone contained the same message in three different languages. And thanks to the work of a guy called Jean-Francois Champollion, the hieroglyphics were decoded, which unlocked all the writings of the ancient Egyptian world. This stone, by having the same decree in three different languages, made the Rosetta Stone the key to deciphering Egyptian hieroglyphs. You see, up until this time, no one knew how to read hieroglyphs. But the discovery and decoding of this stone, scholars would now be able to unlock all the history, all the religious teachings, and all the culture of the Egyptians. And so, this was the first of the three most significant archaeological discoveries for validating the historical accuracy of these ancient Hebrew manuscripts. The second significant archaeological discovery came from Iran. It's known as the Behistun Inscription. Now, the Behistun Inscription is to cuneiform what the Rosetta Stone was to the Egyptian hieroglyphs. This document was the most crucial in deciphering a previously lost script. It was made by Darius the Great, a very famous king in the Middle East. Now, it's the scripts that this story is written in that's significant. You see, like the Rosetta Stone, it was written in three different scripts. And most important was the cuneiform, because it was an unknown script. This was the language that was used in ancient Samaria and amongst the Babylonians and the Persians. It was the script of the whole Persian region. Now, thanks to the work of Henry Rawlinson, a British soldier, in 1835, he decoded the cuneiform. And now we're able to understand and unlock the history, the culture, the religious practices and the medical practices of this ancient Persian world. 
And the third significant archaeological discovery was a number of scrolls found in clay jars in caves near the Dead Sea in 1947. These scrolls, of course, have become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, these scrolls are ancient Hebrew texts, which have been dated between 200 and 100 BC. And we know this because of carbon dating, the script style, and the type of pottery that the scrolls were found in, and also some of the coins that were found in the jars. Now, some of these scrolls were about the religious practices of the people who wrote these scrolls, and they're thought to be the Essenes, a religious Jewish sect that lived in the region. But a major portion of these scrolls are the scrolls or the books of what we would call the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament in our modern-day Bibles. These are copies of the originals, and archaeologists have found a copy of every book in the Old Testament except the book of Esther. Now, why was this discovery so significant? Well, these scrolls prove that the Bible that we have today has not changed in more than 2,200 years. You see, when you compare any part of the Old Testament of your Bible that you have there at home with these scrolls, there is almost no difference. The only differences that do occur are transliterations of names of people and places, and there's slight spelling differences, but nothing that changes the stories, the meaning, or the message. Nothing has changed in over 2,200 years. Now, this is absolutely incredible, because many scholars had thought before this time that it was impossible to have a document like the Bible, which has a 3,500-year-old history, without differences creeping in to the text over such a long period of time. Because how can you copy a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy without errors creeping in? Kind of like the old Chinese whispers game. Someone says something and someone says something else and someone says something else. And eventually when you get down the line, the message has changed. But the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed that the text we have today is the same text they used 2,200 years ago. Well, it's that time again. We need to take a short break now, but when we come back, we'll continue with my quest to find out if these Hebrew texts prove the existence of God or not. And coming up is today's code word for this amazing book, The History of Tomorrow. We'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. The Faith Experiment is made possible because of people like you. If you enjoy what we are doing, please consider supporting us by making a donation on our website at faithfm.com.au slash donate.
You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is Episode 7, which I'm calling Testing the Gods. And we're talking about how to test the claim of the Bible, that God, or a supernatural being, is the author of these texts. And before the break, I was sharing with you how there are three significant archaeological discoveries that will aid in the testing the historical accuracy of the Bible. And they were the Rosetta Stone, the Behistun Inscription, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, with these three discoveries, I had the resources to check the historical accuracy of the Bible. Now, coming up is today's code word for the great book, The History of Tomorrow. You will want to get this book. It reveals Earth's last 2,600 years through the eyes of kings, prophets, popes, and presidents. It unveils a pattern in the timeline of history and exposes some amazing events that will soon alter the face of our planet. Now, what's the evidence that the Bible is historically accurate? Well, I found numerous accounts to explore and to dig into, but for the sake of time on this episode, I'll just look at a few of them. The first account comes from Moab. Moab were a group of people called the Moabites, and they lived in what we would call today Jordan. Now, in the biblical manuscripts, there are numerous references to the Moabites. One of these references talks about King Misha of Moab's rebellion. Now, King Misha is believed to have lived about 9th century BC. In the biblical manuscript, this is what it says about Misha in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 4. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep master, and he had to pay the king of Israel, whose name was Omri, the wool of a thousand lambs and of a hundred thousand rams. But it came to pass when Ahab, son of Omri, was dead, that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel, whose name was Jehoram, son of Ahab. Now, that's what the biblical record says about Moab. Now, the problem with this record is, is that for centuries, archaeologists and scholars couldn't find a single piece of evidence that even slightly suggested that the Moabites even existed. I mean, for centuries, there was just nothing about these people. No coins, no clay, no writing, nothing. And so many leading theologians and scholars and archaeologists came to the conclusion that there was a creative, shall we say, fiction here in the biblical accounts. And that much of these so-called historical accounts of these ancient Hebrew manuscripts were nothing more than stories. That was, of course, until 1868 when archaeologists made an amazing discovery. In the Louvre Museum in Paris, there's stored an amazing stone called the Moabite stone, or the Misha Stele. This stone was found, as I said, in 1868, and there is an amazing story behind its discovery. But what archaeologists found was that this stone dates back to the 9th century BC, which is the exact time that the biblical records were talking about. Now, on the Moabite stone, there is an inscription which says, I am Misha, king of Moab. Omri, king of Israel, had oppressed Moab many days, but I have triumphed over his house. The discovery of this stone sent shockwaves through the archaeological community. With this stone, for the first time, there was now proof that the Moabites did exist. 
And not just that they existed, but the exact same account that we find in the Hebrew manuscripts was supported by this stone, written in an entirely different language by a different culture and by different people. This was the other side to the same story. The Moabite stone had validated the historical accuracy of the biblical account. Now the next account comes from Iraq. In Iraq today there is a fascinating place which is known as the ancient city of Babylon. Now back in 600 BC, Babylon was the home to the famous King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, as I've shared on previous episodes, he's mentioned many, many times in the ancient Hebrew biblical records. The Bible describes Nebuchadnezzar as making three raids against Jerusalem in 605 BC, in 597 BC, and in 586 BC, when he destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Now, there was a small clay tablet that was found, which is called the Babylonian Chronicle. And on this tablet, archaeologists were able to decode the cuneiform because of the Basistan inscription that they found earlier. And what they found on this clay tablet described Nebuchadnezzar's second raid in 597 BC, which again forced the archaeologists to acknowledge the historical accuracy of the Hebrew manuscripts. Now, during the last raid, Nebuchadnezzar took a number of prisoners from Jerusalem back to Babylon, and one of these prisoners was named Daniel. Now, what's interesting is is that among the Dead Sea Scroll collection, one of the scrolls was the scroll or the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel dates back to the 6th century BC, and in this manuscript, Daniel tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was the person, the king, who built the new Babylon. You see, it had been destroyed by the Assyrians, and Daniel tells us that Nebuchadnezzar built Babylon. But scholars said that's wrong. The Bible is a myth. The Bible's made a blunder. It's made a mistake. And that the Bible is not historically accurate. Because, you see, scholars believe that a queen by the name of Samarius had built the city around the 7th or 8th century BC. Well, when the scholars and the archaeologists started to dig up in Babylon, guess what they discovered? They found these incredible gates called the Ishtar Gates. I mean, you've got to see these things. They are super impressive. They stand about 14 meters high and about 30 meters wide. These gates are made of a beautiful, iridescent blue brick. Now, the Germans who excavated these gates, they removed every single brick one by one and then took it to the Pergamon Museum in Berlin and they put it all back together exactly the way it was in Babylon. Now, if you go to the Pergamon Museum today, these gates are impressive. Now, when they were excavating these gates, they found on the side of the gate an inscription which said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, laid the foundation of the gates. But not only that, as they excavated Babylon, they found hundreds and hundreds of bricks that had Nebuchadnezzar's name stamped into each and every one of them. And so, once again, the scholars and the archaeologists were forced to acknowledge that the biblical manuscripts were once again a historically accurate document and that these writings had not changed with time. And in fact, it was the scholars who had to change their history books because of the biblical records. Now, the third account we'll look at 
comes from the Hittites. Who were the Hittites? Well, nobody knew who the Hittites were, but they're mentioned about 40 times in the ancient Hebrew manuscripts. And so, once again, people said this is another mistake of the Bible. The Bible's got it wrong again. Because outside of the Bible, no one has ever heard of these people. There is zero evidence for them for their existence. And yet, the Bible talks about them again and again and again. Here's one example where the Bible talks about the Hittites. In the book of 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 6, it says this, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Now, what's remarkable here is, is that the Bible account places the Hittites alongside with the Egyptians, who everybody knew about. So, this was an example where the Bible talked about them, but the scholars said, no, that's wrong. The Hittites didn't exist. Now, if you go to the 1860s edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, you'll find eight lines about the Hittite people. And most of those lines come from the Bible because nobody knew anything about them. Well, that was until archaeologists began to work in an area of central Turkey, in a place called Hattusa. Now, what they found there was incredible. They discovered a lost city. Its ruins are massive. If you visit there, you're going to need a bus to get from place to place because it's just so vast. And the things you find there are just as amazing. There are large gates lined with these statues of lions. And then down the road a bit further, there's a temple with statues of these gods. It was an amazing discovery, but nobody knew who these people were. But as they continued in their diggings, they soon discovered that these were the Hittite people. And if that wasn't amazing enough, when archaeologists deciphered the Egyptian hieroglyphics and they did some more excavations back in Egypt, they came to the temple of Ramses, the mighty king of Egypt. And inside his temple, they discovered an inscription where Ramses II is fighting the Hittites. And for the first time in modern history, archaeologists and scholars now had hard evidence that the Hittites did in fact exist. And just like the biblical account stated, they did exist at the same time as the Egyptians. And what's even more amazing is that in the Istanbul Museum in Turkey, there is a clay tablet which shows a Hittite-Egyptian peace treaty between the two kings. There's no question today that the Hittite Empire existed. And it actually even rivaled the mighty Egyptian empire and the Assyrians. And once again, the biblical records got it right. What I found was that archaeology shows very clearly that these ancient manuscripts are historically accurate. And when I came across this statement from one of the greatest archaeologists of our age, W.F. Albright, who wrote over 800 works on archaeology, this is what he said after decades of digging in the Middle East. This is what he says. In the center of history stands the Bible. Thanks to modern research, we can now recognize the Bible's substantial historicity. To sum it up, we can now treat the Bible from beginning to end as an authentic document of religious history. And so, historical accuracy is one of the first things I needed to validate against these Hebrew text, and that's exactly what I found. The ancient Hebrew manuscripts do have historical accuracy. But what about that second factor? Does it have a proven track record of dependable predictions? 
Well, it's time to take a short break now, but when we come back, we'll continue with my quest to see if these ancient Hebrew manuscripts have a proven track record of dependable predictions. And coming up after the break is today's code word for today's giveaway. We'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Faith Experiment, please help us get the word out by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. Letting go of every single dream I lay each one down at your feet Every moment of my wandering Never changes what you see I've tried to win this war, I confess My hands are weary No matter what I face, you're by my side When you don't move the mountains, I need you to move When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through You have not seen So in all things Be my life and bread I want what you want Lord and nothing less When you don't move the mountains I'm needing you to move When you don't part the waters I wish I could walk through When you don't give the answers As I cry Trust, I will trust in you The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is Episode 7, and I'm calling this Testing the Gods. 
Now, before the break, I shared with you a number of archaeological findings that caused the academic world to rewrite much of the history books in terms of the Middle East. Although the last three and a half thousand years, the ancient Hebrew manuscripts had talked about various people and places and events, most scholars and archaeologists believed that the Bible was fictitious, inaccurate and just plain wrong. But with the discovery of the Rosetta Stone and being able to decipher the hieroglyphs, and the Behistun inscription helping to decipher cuneiform, and with the Dead Sea Scroll showing that the texts of the Bible have not changed in 2,200 years, all of this helped to unlock and uncover these tablets and stones and bricks found in the dust of the Middle East. And as their meanings were revealed time and time again, the biblical account was validated and the history books were rewritten. And I left you with the quote from one of the greatest archaeologists of our time, W.F. Albright, who said, In the center of history stands the Bible. Thanks to modern research, we can now recognize the Bible's substantial historicity. To sum it up, we can now treat the Bible from beginning to end as an authentic document of religious history. Well, as I've shared, about 70 years ago, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And among these scrolls, one of the popular documents was a scroll of about 9,000 words called the Book of Daniel. About half of the book deals with historical accounts connected with the Babylonian captivity of Jerusalem around 600 BC. While the second half of the book deals with future predictions. And it was the prophetic part of this book that I used to start to explore the claims regarding predictions. In 332 BC... Alexander the Great was on his way to Jerusalem to destroy it. But before he arrived, he was met by some Jewish priests who showed him a prophecy from the 8th chapter of the book of Daniel, which was written about 200 years before. After hearing of the prophecy, Alexander the Great decided not to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And the question is, how come? What was in this prophecy that caused him to change his mind? Well, in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel sees a vision of a great war between a ram and a goat. In Bible prophecy, beasts were often used as symbols of political power, and the same is true in this vision. So what did this beast or nation represent? The prophecy doesn't leave you guessing because it comes right out and names the power. In Daniel chapter 8 verse 20, it says this, it says, the ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Medea and Persia. So the ram in this vision represents the kingdom of Medea Persia, who, if you remember from your high school history lessons, was the empire who under Cyrus the Great conquered the Babylonians. The prophecy goes on to name who the goat would be. In Daniel 8.21, it says, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece, the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. So according to the prophecy given Daniel, the goat would represent the kingdom of Greece, but the focus of this goat is the large horn. The horn or the first king of this united Greek empire was, of course, Alexander the Great, who toppled and destroyed the Medo-Persians. It was this part of the prophecy written 200 years before the event that the Jewish leaders showed Alexander the Great when he arrived to Jerusalem. And I guess he was thrilled to learn that these Hebrew holy book people had predicted his rise to power. But Daniel's prophecy doesn't end there. It says in Daniel chapter 8, verse 8, it says, Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up towards the four winds. 
And so the four horns that represented Alexander the Great represented the fact that Greece would be divided into four parts after Alexander the Great's death, which, of course, again, knowing our European history, is exactly what happened. But the prophecy continues. It says, Four notable horns came up towards the four winds of heaven, and out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, towards the glorious land, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. He cast the truth down to the ground, and he shall even rise against the prince of princes. In these passages, there are eight characteristics of this little horn. One, he would go south. Two, he would go east. Three, he would go to Israel. Four, he would be greater than Greece. Five, he would stand against the Messiah. Six, he would cast down the sanctuary. Seven, he would take away the daily temple services. And eight, he would trample on God's people. Now, if we look at these eight characteristics of this little horn and compare it with the history of Europe and the Middle East, we find a remarkable hand-in-glove scenario for this prophecy. This little horn that was predicted in the 6th century BC is none other than Imperial Rome. Here's how Rome fulfilled those eight characteristics. Number one, it would go south. Well, that's Egypt in the Bible, and that's exactly what Rome did. Remember Mark Antony and Cleopatra? Rome was in Egypt. Number two, it would go east, exactly as it did. Number three, it would go to the glorious land, which is a term for Israel. And in 63 BC, Rome entered Palestine and took control of it. Number four, it would be greater than Greece. Well, that's exactly what happened. Rome was more powerful, it ruled longer and ruled further than Greece did. Number five, it would stand against the Messiah. It was the Roman Empire that had the ability to release Jesus from the trial, and yet it was under the Roman Empire that Jesus died on the cross. The crucifixion was an instrument of Roman execution. Number six, it was the Romans who in 70 AD marched in to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Number seven, it was the Romans who ransacked the sanctuary and took the golden furniture away. There's even a picture of this happening. It's on an arch called the Arch of Titus, in which it depicts the carrying away of the golden lampstand from the Jewish temple. And number eight, perhaps the most heartbreaking of all these predictions, in the 6th century BC, the prophet Daniel claims he was shown by God that Rome would be a persecutive power and it would trample on God's people. And that's exactly what history teaches us. Under Rome, leaders like Nero ordered the death of thousands, if not millions of Christians. They were used as human candles. They were used as sport in the great Colosseums across the empire. And so when I looked at this prophecy, I found that there were 12 predictive elements. One, the fall of Medo-Persia by name. Two, the rise of Greece by name. Three, Greece would divide under its leadership to four leaders. Four, Rome would arise after Greece. And then the eight characteristics of the little horn. The chances of one human being living more than 600 years before the event, being able to, with pinpoint accuracy, name kingdoms and characteristics of successive kingdoms is absolutely astonishing. Every one of these 12 predictive elements came to pass. The names were right, the locations were right, the numbers were right, the characteristics were right, the sequence was right, exactly as the prophecy predicted. As I sat there, looking at just this one prophecy, I was amazed. Either I am dealing with something that is one of the greatest hoaxes in human history with this prediction, or I am in fact, dealing with something that is supernatural. Next time on The Faith Experiment, I'll continue to take you on my personal faith experiment. 
and show you how I went from a non-believer to a faith experimenter. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I have a great book to give away today, The History of Tomorrow. This book reveals Earth's last 2,600 years through the eyes of kings, prophets, popes, and presidents. It unveils a pattern in a timeline of history and exposes some amazing events that will soon take place on our planet. So if you would like to get a copy of this book, all you need to do is text the code word TOMORROW to 048885311. And the Faith FM giveaway bot will reply to you asking for details. So text the code word TOMORROW to 048885311. Now it's time for this week's inbox where I browse through the inbox and share your comments, feedback and questions. Up first I have a text from Margie who says, I'm from Eidsvale listening to your program. Very interesting. Thanks so much Margie. I'm glad you're finding the faith experiment interesting don't forget to share it with your friends and family next i have an email from ross who says hi robbie i just wanted to tell you that i thoroughly enjoyed your show and about your story i loved what i did here though i was hoping that your story might be repeated on a weekend well good news ross i checked with the scheduling guys and they tell me that the faith experiment is repeated on sundays at 11 a.m daylight savings time and I have another text here from John who says, Thank you, Robbie. Received your ebook. Looking forward to reading it and using it where God leads. Well, thank you very much, John, for your feedback and to everyone else who's replied and commented to me. I really do appreciate it. Remember, you can text me your comments on 048-45311 or email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au. I'd love to hear your thoughts and your comments. I'll catch you next week at the same time right here on Faith FM for the next episode of The Faith Experiment. I'll see you then. You have been listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Connect with us via text message on 048-45311. That's 048-45311. Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au and let us know what you thought of this episode.